signifies where this kind of series on Philipp- in Philippians, where we've dealt with joy and suffering, those have been the big themes as of late. The next one we're moving into is humility, and we began addressing this a couple of weeks ago. But for these next weeks, this is going to get very pointed, uh, predominantly because this is exactly what Paul does. He He's kind of like got this funnel that he's using to draw us into this critical teaching that addresses humility, self-service, and sacrifice. And so um, if you've read any Greek mythology, um, I'm a self-confessed dork when it comes to this stuff. Um, if you've read any Greek mythology, you know of a guy named Narcissus. You've probably heard of that name. If you have not read any Greek mythology, uh, then the wisdom of the Greeks will likely have shown you that story in a different way. You have, I guarantee you, you have experienced that at some points in our lives, maybe we've even been this person, uh, we have suffered from or observed the condition named after the character Narcissus, the condition of narcissism. Okay? Now, Narcissus, uh, Narcissus was a, a young man, a handsome Greek man, and the, the moral of the story is that he was so infatuated with himself that he got incredibly frustrated when he could not marry himself. I mean, this is how much in love uh, he was with himself. And the infatuation grew because he spent his time uh, in front of a very clear pool of water looking at his reflection and in admiring it. So Narcissus literally spends his days reflecting of, on himself by this pool of water. And over time, it leads to this incredible and eventually obsessive admiration of himself. And so the moral of that story is that his absolute love for himself was incredibly dangerous, and it actually causes him to become something that isn't in, entirely good. The end result of that is that he becomes the type of person that is not one that the Greeks wanted to model their life after. And so today we use the term narcissism, um, sometimes disconnected from the moral and the root of that story. We use it to describe a person who has what we would consider to be a mild or maybe even extreme personal obsession. And it's exemplified in this reality that they so love themselves that eventually it becomes very hard for them to have any real or meaningful relationships with other, with other people. And the, the primary reason is that nobody, think about this, if you think you are the greatest thing on earth, There is never going to be another person or thing that can actually live up to your standards. It breeds a bit of an arrogance. And on the uh, consequently, the reverse side of this, what happens is you will likely find that people will not necessarily want to be around you because they will sense the, the exuding arrogance there. This is a person who's rooted in selfishness, often and absolutely at the end of this road, at the expense of caring for others. And so this ancient myth and modern condition is exactly the hard attitude that Paul is going to speak against in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, this is the root of what he's talking about. And we should not be surprised that in a world with a predominantly Greek influence, this is something that is a, it's a, a stick point for him. Remember, the gospel spread into several different places, but the, the main themes of the world that Paul lives in right now are Roman and Greek. And so we've talked a little bit about the Roman philosophy of humility and lowliness a few weeks ago. Today, we won't spend any more time looking at the Greek understanding of it, but you can see that these are relevant issues, not just in the first century world, but in our world. And so Paul's going to speak at this and against this in Philippians chapter 2. And he's going to point out, much like joy is an evident mark of a Christian, much like the ability to endure suffering, to persevere is the evident mark of a Christian. Here he tells us that one of the greatest evidences that Jesus is alive in us, okay? There's a big difference between pursuing religion or having a religious, you know, lifestyle and actually experiencing freedom and life where the spirit of Jesus is. This is what he's talking about. One of the shackles that is removed from life is that we, we begin to 
embrace this idea of humble living, of selfless living. And the root, that root actually creates a certain attitude, a certain deed, if you will. It's that we get to this place where we begin to value others as, as ourselves and at times even more valuable than ourselves. So over these next weeks, we're going to take a good look at the importance of and challenges to living a life of humility and sacrifice. I'm not purporting this is going to be easy, but I am purporting it's going to be worth trying to press into this because it is one of the greatest ways we can identify with Jesus as our Lord. To live like this is to live like him, and God can do incredible things in your life when this becomes a priority. So we do this because Jesus has first done this for us. And this leads me to the first And you'll be happy today. Only truth I want to share with you this morning. I had like 13 sermons in this one sermon, and I spread them out so that you can have lunch today. Okay, so I only have one main idea that we'll talk about for the morning. Uh, And then in a very neat way, at the end of service, we have uh, the last of uh, the reception from our gospel partnership class a couple of months ago. So a great day to celebrate um, selfless sacrifice and service as we receive our last crop of partners who are you know, committing to labor for the gospel here. So here's the big thing I want to share with you, and it revolves around understanding the biggest prohibition that's going to keep us from understanding a life of humility or living one. If you want to have humility in your heart, you must first identify the root of what will rob you of it. There is a thief that would like to destroy this attitude, and I want to talk about it this morning. And I'll reiterate what Abby just read and the worship team. Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Paul says, do nothing. That means anything we do, nothing at all, out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, he says, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And so the contrast is clear. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do everything out of uh, selfless love, which roots in Jesus and then expresses itself in the lives of others. Now, this is a very short verse, but it's a very problematic one. This will be challenging in a culture that says to be somebody we must find ourselves often at the expense of others. Okay, so here you've got Paul saying, if you want to find yourself, lose yourself in Jesus. And we live predominantly in a world that says, if you want to find yourself, you've got to lose others and find more of yourself. This is one of those places where the hard edge of the gospel is going to really, it's going to rub up against the cultural norm. So what happens here is Paul is saying to truly find ourselves, uh, excuse me, the culture generally says to truly find ourselves, to truly become something great in life, It only happens by finding more of ourselves. And this is not a new idea. If you look at some of the old Latin teachings, just the general wisdom, there's a great Latin proverb that says, know thyself. That's essentially the premise of of the proverb. And the idea behind that is that the more you know thyself, the greater you will be in life. And there is a partial truth to this, which we'll touch on in a moment. But this really kind of connects back to the individualism culture that we spoke about last week. There is an unhealthy side to this and a potentially healthy side. So it's very, very much worth pointing out that this passage is not a command to never think about yourself. That's a bit naive. It's not a command to never care for yourself or to value yourself. In fact, one of the benefits of knowing Jesus is that he prescribes to us a worth that cannot be attacked by anything in the world. So what happens here is we, we actually are more valuable than ever when we understand who we are in light of Jesus. Yet that should not create an arrogance in us. It should breed a humility. So in large part, the solution to the narcissism problem Paul is addressing here, it actually does involve us spending some time thinking about ourselves. The key here is a distinct one. It's not the way of narcissists. It's not by looking at your, you know, your image in a pool of water. Paul is not saying if you want to know yourself, then gauge yourself or evaluate yourself in light of yourself. That's where we go wrong here. 
What he's telling us to do is he says, if you are in Jesus and you want to be and reach the full capacity that you have as a person, he says, then you have to evaluate yourself in light of Jesus. You have to embrace, Paul will say in verse 5, we won't look at this next week, but uh, this week, but we will next. He says, you have to embrace the mind of Jesus. And there are other places in scripture where we're commanded to do this. Because for those pursuing Jesus, I don't know where you are this morning, but if you love Jesus, our ultimate goal is no longer to find ourselves in us. Rather, it is to find ourselves in him. That's the difference. That's one of the realities of not just believing in Jesus, but living as if he is the Lord of our lives. Now, why does Paul give us a command like this? Why does he say this is essential for for healthy living, especially the pursuit of Christ? Because the ultimate pursuit of self will eventually cause you to worship yourself. It breeds an arrogance that will cause you to see yourself as more important than others, when that's that's the contrary of what we're being told to do here. Think about this. When you try to find yourself in yourself, you are just about guaranteed to, in a very imbalanced way, pay great attention to your strengths. You will highlight what is good about you, and we all have things that are good about us, right? Lots of them. That's what kind of breeds the arrogance thing. When you look in the pool of water, it's very easy to just see the goodness in yourself. But what often happens is the more you reflect on that image, that image, you simultaneously abandon the reality that you have weaknesses. And let's be frank, one of the values of our church is, is, uh, is authentic, authenticity in relationship. And so we all as people have strengths and weaknesses. And it is good for us to admit that because it allows us to be more human. It allows us to be more of who we are, but it also gives us a paradigm to grow out of the things that are problematic for us. When all you see is the good, what happens is it can cripple your ability to grow as a well-rounded person. And it can actually lead you to what is perhaps the most toxic attitude on the, on the planet that Paul talks about here. It leads us to the high potential of selfish ambition and vain conceit. And it is brought about by the pursuit of loving self above all else. Now, this is a strong temptation to fight, and it is an easy one to love. Because like so many of the idols we can worship in life, in this case, we worship the one we adore the most. In this worldview, when you are the ultimate arbiter of life, and you are the person that you look to to gauge who you are and what you need to be, what happens here is you you remove Jesus from the throne of life, and you then put yourself on it. And you are the God here. So this is an easy God to love. I say this a lot, because I love me, and I never disagree with me, and I get up and I look at me, and things are always good. It's very easy to agree with me all the time. But not so much with other people. I don't know why that is. You know? I'm a nice guy. Amen. I'm, amen. That's right. That's right. I am a nice guy. I'm going to tell that to myself in the pool of water. Right? So the, the MO of this person's life is that to, to become great, I am going to get okay with placing myself and my causes, whatever they may be, at the expense of others. And the great irony in this is that the people who think this way are almost always entirely blinded to the ridiculousness of their selfish causes. And when left in that for too long, what happens is you start to believe that what you are doing, you might even deeply believe, is right. Yet on the outside looking in, it's very easy to see this from the outside looking in, but very difficult at times to see it from the inside looking in. What happens is objectivity draws a different conclusion. Like, for example, the person who's a workaholic in the home, right, uh, there's, there's a drive behind that. I want to provide for my family often. And from the outside looking in, somebody could very easily say, you haven't seen your kid in six months. This is crazy. But from the inside looking in, it doesn't feel that way. So what happens is you can actually get to the place where you start to believe what you're doing is right very subjectively. Others see how clearly wrong it is, but, but we cannot. And when left unchallenged, here's where these things become selfish ambition and vain conceit. 
irregular behaviors, things that are generally identified as not good, they become a normal way of life. The irregular becomes the regular, and thus you're on the road to self-ambition and vain conceit as opposed to humility. Now, I want to give you two very clear examples of this uh, expressed in two very different ways. One is a little frustrating, and it involves me. <clears throat> the other is completely deplorable, and it's something that doesn't involve me. First is something that happened to me uh, in the Hooligans parking lot a couple of weeks ago as we had our monthly uh, wing night. You know, uh, once a month, several folks in the church just go out there and we eat a lot of wings and raise our cholesterol and hang out and just have a fun night. And uh, Hooligans is a very busy place. Most of you know that. But on Fridays, it's especially busy. And I have to tell you, I have been to Hooligans a lot. I take half of my meetings there. But I have never seen Hooligans this, this busy. I mean, it was like splitting at the seams busy. And one of the realities of that is that a lot of us had to spend a lot of time less eating and more time looking for parking spots. So um, as I was circling for a parking spot, there were approximately, I was trying to count them as I was driving around, there were about 25 cars circling with me. I mean, you could not turn down a, <clears throat> a lane without a car kind of coming around it. And so I did the thing that we all do. We just kind of look in and look in and nothing's there. And then all of a sudden, um, I come around the front of the restaurant and I see a couple walk out and I do what I like to call the jaws creep. Are you familiar with this? It's where you're like, Dan, and you're two miles an hour behind them. And you're like, I promise I'm not going to run you over. I just need your spot. And they're like, this is a little weird. And you're creeping and creeping and creeping. But you're on their heels because you know the only way you're going to get a spot is if you follow them to the spot. So I did that. And I waved at them when they got in the car to let them know I did not want to rob them or anything. And I was sitting there like you do in the lane waiting to take the spot. And, and that's when it happened. Uh, a car just whipped around from the other way and stopped right there. And what was interesting here is that I had been waiting on that spot for about five minutes. No exaggeration at this point. They were kind of slow to leave. And I know they saw me. They saw the car there, but that didn't matter to them. And here's how I knew it didn't matter to them. They looked at me, and then rather than moving on like I thought they would, they turned their blinker on, <laughs> which essentially said, like, I see you, but I'm just going to take this spot anyways. And so right then, I knew, I knew what was about to happen, and I prepared myself for it. I, I knew in that moment I was going to be challenged in the core of my being. I knew that I was about to be walked on by another human being. And I've shared with you before multiple times that God's done a great work in my life uh, in helping me to deal with anger. It's one of the, the normal conflict resolution tools I was raised with using. And I just stopped and I said, you know, this isn't worth it. And I said, God, just help me to be gracious here. And so in the middle of my prayer, um, the parked car pulled out. And I mean to tell you, like, uh, like a Daytona 500 race, they hit the gas and got right up in that spot. Um, with their blinker on, of course. It was very courteous. That was the part that made me feel good about it. And so as they pulled in, I, I really didn't want to roll my window down. I wasn't even angry. I wanted to roll my window down and just say, hey, I had been waiting on this spot for a while, but I thought, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing good that can come out of this. Even gentle speech right now was likely to be unwise. And so I just chalked it up to God will make that right in heaven one day, and I just kept, I kept moving on. And thankfully, a couple of minutes later, I found another spot and did not have to scrap over it, right? So here's a question. What causes a person to do that? What causes a person to be able to to think like that or to act like that, or in this case, feel justified in doing that. Well, you have, a, you have a, an, an idea that Paul presents here. What he says is when a person or people or groups of people are comfortable looking to their own interests, in this case, um, clearly they felt that they needed to be in that restaurant more quickly than me. And I would say that this was an unjust thing to do, but nonetheless, it's a small unjust thing. What happens is when you are more concerned with addressing your own interests, even one that's crazy like this, at the expense of another person, you can very easily do these things. You don't even think twice about it. 
You put your blinker on and let me know that this is the right thing to do. Now, here's a second example, um, one that is on a far more serious note. I want you to see, uh, like on the news regularly now, we hear this word ISIS, right? And look at the pain and the hurt that so many people have been subjected to because of a group of people who have identified around a common idea, this, this ideology. This is another more serious example of what the scripture is talking about here. This is a group of people, and there are many like them in the world, this is just the more prevalent one, who feel that they have the right to just move into a Middle Eastern town, uh, kill all the men, and enslave the women for their own personal purposes. And I want you to keep in mind, these, this is not something we deal with on a regular basis in America. So to a certain degree, we've been fortunately spared from it. But there are many people who love Jesus that are being subjected to this in this part of the world. So we need to be regularly praying for God's justice there. But we also need to think through the reality of what's happening here. In the same way, you and I, like in our house, the second Monday of every month, we go grocery shopping. And my wife will tell you, no, I go grocery shopping. He does not. What's he talking about right now? All right, so, so work with me on the pronoun here. We go grocery shopping on the second Monday of every month, right? It's just natural. In the same way you say, hey, I've got to go shopping today. This group of people have been so enculturated to their ideas that th they do this as normally as we go grocery shopping. They rob, steal, oppress, and kill. This is a normal Tuesday for them. And on the outside looking in, we would say, what is happening here? Making matters worse is they deeply believe what they are doing and how they are treating other people is right. So how can this happen in a person's life? How can a person get so comfortable with abusing and taking advantage of another person like that? Owning another person in this paradigm? Well, the answer is in Paul's teaching. It's when a person subjectively serves above all else self. When this happens... Um, the root of that issue, steeped in a lot of ideas, the root of that issue is the preservation of, of selfishness and self. It's essentially people who are wanting to hurt others for the benefit of themselves. And so this is what Paul talks about here. When, when you are so steeped in your own image, what happens is you will almost always entirely neglect the objective truth reality of your situation. The majority of our globe says this is messed up and wrong. But if you were to put those people in a room, they would adhere to the reasons why they feel it is right and acting upon it. So in both instances, we see a direct violation of what Paul talks about here. If all people are equally deserving of respect, then it should be unnatural for anybody to treat anybody this way, whether it is in a restaurant parking lot or in a Middle Eastern city. That is an objective truth. It is, an, it is a truth outside of yourself that brings a clarity to the way you live your life. It is truly a check and balance. And in this case, the value of all human life is, I don't want to say it's distinctly Christian, but it is sure rooted at the origin of Christianity. This idea of valuing all people, no matter where they're coming from, loving them, even our enemies, sometimes as self, this is a truth statement God declares about humanity. And when objective truth shapes our lives, it is likely going to mar the image of what we think is right and wrong. It's going to change it in a good way. However, if the preservation of yourself cause is the highest law of the land, uh, in this case or in these two analogies, getting into a restaurant more quickly or to gain power by oppressing those weaker than you, if all you do is, is gaze at your own reflection in a pool of water, then I would say pretty, pretty strongly that it is very easy to do those kinds of things to other people. In fact, doing that to other people becomes a justified thing to do, maybe even the right thing to do. And I'm going to take a, a gamble here and say that the people that took my spot have probably done that before. 
And the ISIS thing to me is is just astounding because they have developed a, a warped moral conviction to justify why they can do that. They, in other words, they've 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 created an irregular rhythm in their life, and now it's become regular. And in their minds, it's good to do. Let me give you another example of how a life focused on others will be challenged today, and it's the social media culture that we live in. Now, before I kind of get on a short soapbox here, whenever I talk about social media or things that are in our culture today, I always point out I'm not against social media. I use it. Um, I recognize there's a valuable contribution that is made to our culture. But that said, there are, there are two sides to this coin. And the further we move down this road, the more sociology is identifying some of the negative effects of it. Great things are happening and some potentially not so great things. And so a great portion of social media is really the modern-day version of the Greek story of narcissists. It's a modern-day version of a person gazing endlessly at their reflection in a pool. And oftentimes, the reflection is not who the person really is, or at best, is a partial reflection of who they really are. So I'll give you a couple examples of this, and then some, some contrarian examples. If you look at most people's social media pages, they only tell the story of what appears to be a, per a perfect life. You see the pictures of the invites to the parties. You hear about the birth of the children, right? You hear about when you get the job. You see the pictures of the date nights and the anniversaries. You see the pictures of, of never being without mass groups of friends. Uh, it, sh it simply looks like everybody has everything together. And even worse, some people have what I like to call the magnum look set as their profile pic. And if you guys are familiar with the magnum look, I'm going to give you an example of it back here. So, so I took this four years ago with my daughter, who's one, so you can see the timestamp on it. This was me at my highest peak of cynicism, and it's not, it's not hard for me to get there. But we were on vacation, and I just said to my wife, we were in an elevator, I said, I've never taken a magnum shot, and I'm going to take it. And so I never posted it, but you can see it now. This is the magnum look, in case you haven't seen it. And the magnum look is developed from, uh, it's, it's kind of a knockoff joke from a movie that came out a long time ago by an American comedian named Ben Stiller. And the magnum, it was like, the, the movie was like a play uh, and a pun on the modeling industry in America and he had this ability he only used it like two times but this look when he gave it would wow everybody around him into just complete submission and so there's my magnum and, and clearly it, it wowed you not at all so, so why people do this I don't know but, but nonetheless hopefully my words will win you over this is the magnum, right? And the idea is that uh, it's almost a look that is supposed to subliminally infatuate everybody in its presence. And it seems like there are a lot of these on, on Facebook today. And what, what the picture kind of says is, is, is semi-proud. It says, hey, look at me because I'm worth looking at. That's what they say. So here's the, here's the pointier edge of this thing, right? By the way, don't take pictures of this and post it because I'll be very angry. So let's flip it, Rob, before it gets bad. <laughs> um, over time, sociologists have said that something is happening through the social media revolution. Uh, much like narcissists gazing at the reflection in a pool of water, over time it can actually cause you to see an image of yourself that isn't entirely accurate and sometimes not accurate at all. So practically speaking, what happens is if all you ever see and think about is the win in life, then you can start to think more highly of yourself than, than you ought to. And it says something. It says that that's how you want people to see you. You want them to see the win, not necessarily the, the struggle or the trial. And here's a case in point of this, um, which, by the way, struggle and trial are just as normative as wins in life. Maybe sometimes even more normative. Right? Far and few between are the posted pics of the night you're sitting in your home, in your living room by yourself because you didn't get invited to the party. We all have those stories. A far and few between are the pics where you post a picture of you before you're proper and trimmed up. Right? You don't roll right out of bed and snap a selfie. That's not how it works. Far and few between are the pics of the people showing the story of what happens when you lose your job or you foreclose on your home. That's never celebrated on Facebook. Hardly ever. I've never seen it anyways. 
you hardly ever see pics of people ripping their hair out because once all those cute babies grow up and they become uh, teenagers rebelling and trying your every nerve, that doesn't make the cut. And so what happens is sometimes we can develop a false sense of self and even a false sense of what's going on in our life when we think the win is the only thing that should be happening. And the social media page is, is perhaps one of the best examples of what happens when a person is above all else concerned with telling the story of their own life, oftentimes at the expense of another's life. And again, I'm not against social media. I use it. I just want us to be cautious of the negative side of it. What it does here is it creates a sort of cultural expectation in a person's life. Think about this. Paul says, value others as yourself. But what the social media revolution has done is it said, if I have some free time, I'm going to spend it looking at me. And if you have some free time, a good way to use that time is to spend it looking at me. And so you can see how it, it, it curves inward on itself. And the attitude often causes us to miss the main point of the humility teaching that we're examining right now and will be examining. Part of what it means to follow Jesus, and perhaps we might even say the leading attitude of what it means to follow Jesus, is that we have to be just as concerned with looking to the needs of others as we are looking to the needs of ourselves. And sometimes we might even need to make a sacrifice for self for the sake of another. We might need to give out of our need, not out of our surplus. Now, a few weeks ago, I watched a Q talk given by a pretty well-known political commentator and writer for the New York Times named David Brooks. This was kind of a meme that circulated the Internet. It's amazing. As I started talking on this, there was just humility stuff that popped up all over the place. And so I did a lot of like extra extra biblical reading um, in his talk. This video I watched, it was about 20 minutes. Well worth watching if you have a moment. His talk chronicled how our culture has substantially evolved over the last century um, from the early part of the century, where generally speaking, that's not to say there wasn't narcissism in the front end of the century, but it just seemed like the, the, the pages turn. And so in the early part of the century, this idea of self-effacement or the idea of trying to keep oneself out of the forefront in all matters of life, out of the spotlight, was a little bit more normative. And we might even say maybe far more normative than what we see today where the general idea of culture, the pervasive attitude, is a culture of self-preoccupation, where everyone now feels largely entitled, to, they have a right and deserve to be in the forefront of every area of life. And he gave, I mean, it was a litany of really good examples, some more funny, like he said, if you were to ask the average American student um, where America stands in global mathematics, I think, don't quote me here, but it was roughly like they said that they were like the, the greatest mathematicians on earth. And truthfully, like South Korea was and America was like 36 on the list. So you can see how there's almost a self-indoctrination that you start to believe things that are not entirely accurate. So he, he gave a list of these things, this perception problem. And then he gave the one that stood out to me most. And as a history buff, here's why it did. He said uh, one night he was driving home. It was a Sunday night, and I listen uh, to a lot of NPR. I find it informative. And uh, he was listening to a segment uh, that was rebroadcasting the actual radio broadcast that was played for America uh, the night of 1945 when World War II ended, VJ Day, when, when essentially victory was declared over Japan and World War II ended. And it was a, you know, one of those rebroadcasts, and he said the host was Bing Crosby, you know, a little bit of a flashback there. And in the course of the, the, the program, they were interviewing all kinds of people, famous military generals, Dwight Eisenhower, all kinds of people. And he said that the, the pervasive tone of the conversation was victory. I mean, don't get me wrong. People were happy it had ended. But he said it was really tempered with a strong tone of humility. And he said that people were taking into account when you were interviewing them the great cost of the war. They weren't just, you know, you know, blowing the kazoos. They were saying that the reality of blowing the kazoo is that this would costed so many people so much. They recognized the efforts of the soldiers, the allied governments, the nations at large uh, that did these things to bring this about. And the short story here is that it was extreme celebration tempered with intense humility. 
So he said, I got home that night. It's a Sunday night. And he said, when I got home, I turned on an NFL football game. Um, again, nothing against football. He said, uh, where a wide receiver caught a football and secured a two-yard gain. And he said, in the supreme moment of professional athleticism, if you watch sports, you know this would be very common. He said, the wide receiver got up and he did a lavish victory dance in celebration of himself. And he said, that's when I got an idea to write a book. And that's what he was talking about, or he was in the process of it. He said, it occurred to me that I had just seen a bigger victory dance after a two-yard gain in a football game than I had seen and heard after the nation had declared victory in World War II. And his point was, things have kind of changed. And he went on to say this in his talk, and I think this is worth noting. We'll look at two humility talk quotes today. This one in Lewis at the back end of this talk, C.S. Lewis. He said, humility is not low self-esteem. We dealt with that two weeks ago. It's not that you're worthless. It's not a false sense of denigrating self. That is a direct gospel violation. He said, humility is not low self-esteem. It's a low self-preoccupation. And what he meant was that to be a person of humility doesn't mean you're weak and insecure. Rather, it means you've just gotten to the place in life where you realize that the world is very big and life does not just revolve around you. It means you're at a place in life where your thoughts and deeds are not just preoccupied with promoting yourself. Rather, your efforts are just as inclined to promote the well-being and interests of others too. It means as you think about how to make your life better, you are simultaneously thinking about how to make others better too. And so this self-preoccupation attitude is what Paul is dealing with in Philippians 2, 3 through 4. He identifies much of what we have talked about today as selfish ambition, or at least it has the high capacity to turn into it. And we can rightly see these things as the opposite of humility. And when these two things are combined, selfish ambition, vain conceit, what what you have is, I said it earlier and I'll say it again, perhaps the most toxic hard attitude on the planet, because it then gets to the place where self is so important you will treat other others poorly. This is the kind of attitude, you know, it doesn't just fight to live. It's not like you recognize there are things you're going to have to strive for in life. It's an attitude that lives to fight. This is, you live for the fight because you want to be right. It's a person who is uh, more concerned with wanting to be right all the time than actually taking into account whether or not they are actually right. I don't know if you've ever dealt with a person like this, but you can see what's more, more concerning to them is saving face to be right, even though maybe what they're doing is incredibly wrong. Objective truth is not important in this person's life. Preserving pride, reputation, and saving face is the highest value of the land. And when the mantra you live your life by is this, what happens is you're going to get frustrated, angry, and you might even lash out. You might even in self-defense. Uh, I, you know, we all have different personalities, so the way we will preserve self might look different, but it typically falls under one of two categories. You will dominantly subdue to defend yourself, or you will passively manipulate to defend self. Either way, these are both attempts at uh, at stopping or thwarting the causes of self uh, of, of those that attack self-preservation. Now, being transparent here, call this a it's a wraparound, at least in my teachings. I want to I want to give you the closure point of hooligans here with me. Being transparent, the more I reflected on that parking lot story over the course of these last two weeks, and and feeling a little slighted at first, but thanking God, you know, that I didn't get angry. Um, the more I sensed Jesus showing me the root of the identity of why I needed to pray. That was much deeper than just a parking lot issue. At that very moment, what happened was, once you think about this and transpose this into your own world, I had my identity attacked. And the root of why I needed to pray was because in that moment, I started to feel very small in a big parking lot. That couple taking my spot was saying, they didn't say it with words, but they said it with actions. My life is just a little more important than yours. And that's why that rubs against the nature of who we are as people. On the surface level, the parking lot thing seems silly. 
But when you get to the attitude that informs the attitude, the root of the heart, it's actually not silly. And these types of things have caused people to, you know, to the brink of suicide and sometimes even beyond it. They take their own life. When it happens to us, these things are not silly. We all have the buttons and, and they're all pushed in different ways. But the root of this is that self-preservation is typically, um, it's a response to, to trying to identify with something. And it is the wrong thing to identify with. It's finding self in self. The root of this tension is the fact that somebody is doing something to us that is essentially saying, I believe you're a lot less worth, you're worth a lot less to me in this life. Whether it's a relational wrong or a friendship wrong, you're taken advantage of in the workplace, there is an expression of the act. But the root of the act is, I matter more than you. And that's why I can treat you this way. If I actually value you as a person, I, I wouldn't do this to you. I wouldn't take advantage of you like this. And so you see, when we as Christians live a life, here's where, here's where Paul goes with this. The internal, our identity shapes what we do. When we as Christians live a life that only promotes our self-interests, whether it's in some of the extravagant ways I talked about today, or in some of the more nominal but, but no less significant ways, we say the same thing to every person we come in contact with who we treat this way. If we can volitionally and willingly neglect the needs of our neighbors, or fellow believers, you know, the talk last week about caring for the body. It's like we're saying my time, uh, my resources, my hobbies, my privacy, whatever they are, they are just a little more important than you. When that attitude is left unchecked in our life, what happens is we do not have a truthful voice in the Christian paradigm, the truthful voice of Jesus speaking into our lives about those behaviors. We don't have the word checking us. We don't have the Holy Spirit checking our guts in the moment. And we don't have each other as Christians in accountable relationships saying, hey, man, I know this is hard for you. I love you, and I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to be here for you. Like when you get angry or whatever your issue is, you know my number. Make sure you call me. Without those things, what happens is we are likely to see irregular behaviors develop into routine life patterns that no longer honor Jesus. Yet, here's the kicker. We are now so loyal to them, we deeply believe they're right. In their own way, they become the convictions, very different than Jesus's, that guide and shape what we do. And so the solution to this, which we introduced today, but we'll unpack. I mean, this isn't the end of this talk. Consider it volume one in probably a five-week series. He says the solution to this self-preoccupation problem is asking God to truly help, your, help you find yourself in Jesus, yet to lose yourself. And this is what we'll be studying as we continue Philippians chapter 2. And in verse 5, which we didn't look at today, Paul tells us the way to really find yourself is by losing yourself. It's by knowing deeply the mind of Jesus. He says the transformation process of becoming a person who really cares about others and, and frankly, who understandably and rightfully cares about themselves. You have a healthy understanding of self-worth. Not, you're not undershooting that mark or overshooting it. One leads to depression. The other leads to arrogance. Truly knowing self, right, comes by understanding who Jesus is. And when this happens, some other great things happen. The shackles of the pressure of self-preservation go away. Because you don't always have to be the center of attention in life. You'll make it when you don't get invited to the party. And you will likely not ever do that to another person. You will be okay when you're wrong. I mean, one of the greatest marks of humility is being able to say, yeah, sorry, I made a mistake. Because you don't have to always be right. Part of what it means to be human is the fact that we make mistakes, and quite frankly, a lot of them. What happens here is, in a very Jesus-centered way, you start to deny self by serving others. And that becomes a tangible way of renewing and transforming the mind, the heart, and the will 
to the ways of Jesus. Paul's literally, Paul literally tells us that in Romans. He, he talks about the transformation of our mind away from the things that do not honor God to the things that do honor God happen in our relational intimacy with Jesus. And so while the values of modesty and humility are not as valued as they might have once been in our culture, uh, they are still very valuable in God's economy. And this is the truth of God's kingdom. It is a worldview that defines a worldview. We are not to be subjected to those things. We are to more labor well and give our world glimpses of the way God wants it to be. And humility is the way God wants it to be. They are still very valuable in God's economy and every relationship we have. And contrary to popular belief, they are not signs of weakness. Lowliness, as we said last week, is a mark of the strong. These are the great ironies of the cross, the foolishness of uh, uh, this wisdom that, that kind of confounds men, right? The, the lowliness of life is a mark of those who are confident enough in Jesus to say, I actually have it together, not because of me, but because of Jesus. And because of that, I have the freedom to focus on others, to be a blessing to others. Rampant self-preservation is, also, is almost always an evidence of, um, of hyper-insecurity. But those who are in Jesus can be freed from that. And we can labor for the sake of others in the same way that we labor for our own well-being. And so I'll leave you with this, or at least this quote. C.S. Lewis described humility like this. He said, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, that he will be what most consider humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, slimy person who is always telling you he is a nobody. He won't be telling you he's humble, is what he's saying. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. He will not be thinking of humility. Uh, he will not be thinking of himself at all. And then he goes on to say this, and I think this is the moral of this whole message. True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. I want to say that again. True humility is not thinking less of yourself. You are valuable to God. It is thinking of yourself less. And so you see where there is an absence of humility, there will likely be a strong presence of selfishness and conflict. And we'll get into this in the weeks that come. They will be a direct threat. We should not underplay the chronology of Paul's writings here. They will, there will be a direct threat to the unity of Jesus Paul has just commanded us to strive for. As I said two weeks ago, you cannot preserve the unity of God's kingdom when, when your most important asset in life is yourself. Because what happens then is you will just defend self at the expense of the unity of God's kingdom. And in that moment, what happens is the spirit that rules the day is aggression, self-preservation, not the grace of Jesus. And this is why Paul tells us this immediately following two charges to remain unified. One of the greatest evidences and marks of a church. That people love each other and love others in the same vein. So as we enter our response time in this continuing discussion about a life marked by Jesus' humility, ask God to write these truths on your heart. Let the union that you share with Jesus, let the ultimate unity, reconciliation to God through Jesus' love and death for us, because of his selfless sacrifice for us, let that be the catalyst that produces a love in us for others, unlike any other in the world. And ask yourself this question as we pray, reflect, and respond. When it comes to living in and showing Jesus' care to others, when it comes to seeing the self-effacement of Jesus, the guy who has the spotlight, but asks for it to be shined on a cross of crucifixion. That's how he chose to spotlight himself. Ask yourself, when it comes to living like Jesus and loving others as he has loved us, what is Jesus saying to you? And just as importantly, what are you going to do about it as you leave this place? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for your son. Thank you for an incredibly powerful passage of teaching that highlights both the reality of the otherworldly spirituality you give us, 
You give us an ideal to strive for that is not possible in our own strength. But then you've given us your son to be our strength, to become this. And so it is my prayer that we would press deeply right now through the presence of your Holy Spirit. We would press deeply into the mind of Jesus, that we would, that we would search and reflect upon his selflessness for us. And that you would, in the way you have been doing with your people for millennia, take these cognitive realities and marry them to our hearts. May the truth we hear about now become a reality in the way we live. May it emotively define who we are. If we've come into this place feeling less than we should, I pray that whoever is here right now thinking this, that they would know that you have declared them valuable, worthy, and important. Fill them up. And for those of us, God, who might be a little too filled, I just pray that in your grace you would humble us and show us that the mark of your powerful presence in us is a selfless humility shown to others. Bless this time we have in response, sift and sort us, clear our minds and our hearts, have your way and your will with us. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.